the Bible tells the story of the first man and his wife who ate the fruit of a tree from which they were not permitted to eat. In doing this, they partnered together with Satan, described as a serpent, and they partnered with him against the God who had created them. God's solution to this state of affairs was to split up the home team. You can read all about this in the the book of Genesis, the the first book of the Bible in chapter 3, where God comes down and he inserts a wedge between the woman and the serpent who had teamed up against him. God foretold that both the woman and the serpent would have offspring who would battle against one another. In other words, each of them, the woman and the serpent, they would head up a new family. And the serpent's offspring would bruise her offspring's heel, but her offspring would crush the baby snake's head. This situation set a course for human history where people, as though they were in a gym class, would line up on one side to join Team Viper... Or on the other side, to join Team Woman. How about those for mascots? (laughs) But it's more about families than athletics in Genesis. So instead of a gym class, think of it more like a mob war between two powerful families. Everyone is affiliated with one family or the other. Either you are in God's family through the woman, or you are in Satan's family through the snake. Now, we're studying the the book of Luke together as a church, and we've seen so far in Luke that Jesus came into the world to expose the thoughts and the intentions of people's hearts. Part of that exposure means that he will shine a light on exactly which family you are affiliated with. He wants to make it clear whether your Godfather is God the Father or whether your allegiance is actually to Satan's extended family. This morning, he will shine this light on us. He will expose which family we each belong to by nature. And I'll tip you off, it's not God's family. But he will extend an invitation to defect and join his new family. And he will describe how you can know when you have made the switch from Satan's family to God's family. Before I dive into the passage, let me pray once again and ask the help of God's Holy Spirit. Our Father, please fill us with your spirit now that we might understand the words that you caused to be written so long ago. Help us to see what you have for us that we might recognize our family of origin and be prepared to be rescued, that we might switch families and live freely as your people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in our study of Luke's gospel, we have completed the birth and infancy narratives about both Jesus and his cousin John. We now come to Luke chapter 3, 
where John is all grown up and he's ready to begin his work of preparing people to meet the Lord Jesus. So prepare to be rescued. Verses 1 through 6. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now in the opening verses of the book of Luke, Luke told his reader Theophilus that he would present an orderly account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. And so now that Luke moves forward in this chapter a few decades from what he's been talking about, he places these events for us in in the first few verses. Once again, he places them squarely in history. He's giving us this orderly account. Because of the rulers listed in verses 1 and 2, we can date the beginning of John's ministry to the year of our Lord, 28. This is precisely when... As uh, the verse says, verse 2 says, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. In verses 4 through 6, Luke goes on to describe John's work with a quote from Isaiah chapter 40, which is an, an important chapter from that great book of prophecy that promised a return from exile for the people of God. It describes the coming of God to save his people, but his coming requires preparation. You see, in verse 4, his ministry is to prepare the way of the Lord. In verse 5, that preparation is symbolized by the leveling of the landscape, the filling of valleys and the lowering of mountains. He's leveling things to open a path for, verse 6, For God to come and do his work of salvation that all flesh will see. So we see here that we we must make a distinction between the work of God and the work of John. Don't confuse these two things. John is working on God's behalf, but Isaiah makes a distinction here. God's work, verse 6, is to bring salvation... Another word for rescue. John's work is to prepare people to see and receive that rescue, that salvation. John does not bring the salvation himself. His job is to prepare people so they can see it, the salvation, and receive it. 
So how exactly does John prepare people for God's rescue? How does he prepare them to be rescued? Well, we're told in verse 3. In verse 3, it was by proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This was his ministry. This was his proclamation. And there's so much religious lingo here in this verse. We need to make sure we know what it all means. Lest we fail to be adequately prepared for God's salvation. He came proclaiming a baptism. Baptism just means a washing or a cleansing. A baptism of repentance. Repentance means change, transformation. Uh, It talks about forgiveness, which means that your sin is no longer held against you. It's forgiveness of sin. We need to understand that. Sin is the act of either doing what God forbids or failing to do what God commands. So let's pull these things together. We see that John's preparation involves helping people to see where they've screwed up with God. That's sin. He assures them that they can be acquitted and escape the penalty of screwing up. That's forgiveness. This requires them to change and stop screwing up. That's repentance. And he washes them with water to signify this commitment to living a new and different life. That's baptism. So John prepares people to see God's salvation. In plain language, he does this by proclaiming a washing to signify change for the acquittal of our God crimes. Luke now moves on, almost like rolling a video camera to show us what did John actually say and do to proclaim these things? And how did people respond to it Luke roots all of this preparatory work of John in one chief question. Whose family are you in? And so we must recognize our family of origin. Verses 7 through 9. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Notice here in verse 7 that John's first words in this book are an act of name-calling. You brood of vipers. Now, those of you who have come across this statement, you brood of vipers, if you've come across this statement a lot in your Bible reading, you're probably pretty desensitized to it. So please take a moment with me to recognize what he is saying. He calls them a brood. A brood is a a nest or a family, a group of offspring. And they're a brood of vipers. A viper is a snake, a serpent. 
You see, these words, when John says, you brood of vipers, they're not merely an insult, like a Shakespearean, thou vile knave. No, John is very specifically tapping into the history that I described in the opening to my sermon. He is saying that these people are members of Satan's family. They are baby snakes. They are in the family, the offspring of the serpent. He's saying they are members of Satan's family. They are aligned with that offspring. They're all squirmy and to be considered enemies of God's children. They are children of Satan. And John goes on and and explains this this epithet further in verse 8, where he tells people not to claim Abraham as their father. You see what he's talking about. The issue here is all about who your father is. And he's saying your father is the viper. They say it is Abraham, the forefather of the Hebrew nation. But he he says God can raise up children for Abraham from the stones if he wants. God can reach out to Gentiles and turn them into Jews if he wants to. This, in fact, becomes a major theme in Luke's second volume, the book of Acts. And so with all the crowds coming out to be baptized coming out to John to be baptized by him, John wants them first and foremost to recognize their family of origin. He wants them to know that their family allegiance has nothing to do with physical parentage, with racial ancestry. It has nothing to do even with personal history. All of these good Jewish people coming out to him are still by nature children of satan they are a brood of vipers and so you and i friends must also recognize our family of origin regardless of our skin color regardless of our church background regardless of our academic pedigree we are by nature children of satan If we don't do anything to change it, we are on Satan's team, under his leadership, members of his family. You don't have to worship Satan directly or get mixed up in the occult for this to be true about you. It is simply our natural state of affairs. And the first step to redressing the situation is to recognize and confess the truth of it. And it matters that we get this right because according to verse 9, being children of Satan means that we are also children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The acts of God's justice is coming and those who don't bear fruit in keeping with repentance, in other words, those who don't do anything to change, will be cut down and burned up forever. So please recognize your family of origin. But how can you know that you've switched families? What can we do about that? How can we make sure we're not caught off guard when that axe of God's justice is finally swung against Satan and his family? 
How can we know whether we have defected into God's family? John tells us, verses 10 through 14. The crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. So we see three groups of people are convicted by John's teaching and they want to do something about it. They want to change. Here is the ministry of preparation at work. People will never receive the rescue of God without first recognizing how dire is their need for that rescue. This is why repentance is such crucial preparation for salvation. So these three groups all ask what they should do. In verses 10 and 11, we have the crowds. And John says, share your food and your clothing with those who have need of them. In verses 12 and 13, we see tax collectors. And John says, do your job without unilaterally inflating your rates for personal gain. In verse 14, soldiers come and John tells them, do your job with contentment and without bullying or extortion. These examples that Luke gives here, they fit with his purpose as he's writing to Theophilus, this Roman official, because both tax collectors and soldiers were allies of the Roman Empire. They were despised by most Jews because of that. And Luke is trying to show Theophilus, this Roman official, that the Christian movement has never been politically revolutionary. Here is John, the first major leader of the movement, and he wanted both tax collectors and Roman soldiers to continue serving the empire faithfully. He just wanted them to do so as members of God's family and not as members of Satan's family. Those in Satan's family live first and foremost for themselves. They will hoard their possessions from fear of loss or fear of crisis. They will turn a blind eye to those already suffering loss or crisis. They use their strength and their power to advance themselves and to improve their own security. They don't mind lying or cheating to others if it's for the good of their own comfort and welfare. They consider ethics to be situational. They consider truth claims to be relative because the only opinion that matters is their own. And the most important person to love is themselves. And their idea of the greatest good is to be true to themselves. This is what it looks like to be a member of Satan's family, to be a brood of vipers. But you can defect from this family to serve a kinder master. And you can know that you have in fact switched families when you no longer live for yourself, 
but for the good of others. When you consider the interests of others to be more important than your own interests. When you are willing to be less visible, less honored, less comfortable, and less celebrated so that others can thrive. How does this apply? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, live a life that demonstrates the fact that you have changed. Live a new and different life because you're in a new family. Friends, please understand this. Your behavior toward other people attests to your family affiliation. The way you treat people attests to your family affiliation. Repentance, this life of change, it's not the thing you do once in order to become a Christian. Repentance is simply the thing that Christians do all the time and everywhere. Listen to the the first of 95 theses that Martin Luther nailed to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany to ignite a wildfire across Europe. His first thesis was, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. According to John, repentance must take place at the beginning and all throughout life. Because remember, this is not, repentance itself is not the salvation of God. Repentance prepares you to receive God's salvation. Day after day after day. Because when you repent, you are acknowledging how desperately you need to be rescued. That you have nothing good in yourself to bring. And we got to turn this thing around. And so you seek God. If you want to see Jesus, this is how you pave the way for him. Turn away from your selfishness and from your compulsive self-love. Turn toward the one who brings you salvation. Live out of his love in love toward others, putting yourself on the altar day after day after day and serving others so they might have life along with Christ as well. So sons and daughters of God who have defected from your family of origin to be united to the Lord Jesus Christ, I proclaim now to you in the name of Jesus Christ, Whoever has two automobiles is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Ask no more from others than you are authorized to do. Husbands, stop bullying your wives and be content with who God made her to be. All who would like to demonstrate your membership in the family of God, find whatever holdouts of selfishness and self-importance remain in your lives and turn away from them. Put them to death. Live for others and for something bigger than yourself. As you turn from these things, you show yourself to be ready for God's family and you prepare yourself to receive 
his rescue. This will then enable you to recognize the head of this household when he finally shows up. So in verses 15 to 17, we are told to honor the head of household. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. As John goes about his ministry here, the anticipation is electric. The tension builds in this passage and nearly comes to a breaking point as they're in expectation and questioning in their hearts. And John draws out for us a series of crucial contrasts between one who baptizes with water and baptizing with the Holy Spirit, actually washing you in the inside with God's Spirit. He draws out a contrast between the wheat and the chaff. When God does the harvest, he keeps the good stuff and he throws out the bad stuff. He draws a contrast between the barn where you store up what you treasure and the fire where you burn the trash. And ultimately, he draws a contrast between me, who does all this work of preparation, and him. He who is mightier than I, he who's sandal straps i'm not worthy to untie john clearly sees his ministry as a temporary thing soon to be replaced he's a major leader of this new movement but he is soon to be succeeded by someone far greater than he because what john can do only on the outside with water the next guy will do on the inside with god's spirit What John can only talk about, the next guy will execute. Some of you are like wheat who will be stored up, preserved, and treasured by God Almighty. And others of you are like chaff only to be burned up, consumed, and tossed aside. But the most important contrast here is not between what John does and what his successor will do. The most important contrast is between who John is and who his successor is. John knows that he is not the head of household for this family. John is less than a servant compared to his successor. John is less than a weakling compared to the strength this strong guy. John is a messenger, and the next guy will be the real deal. John prepares, but the next guy rescues. I want to show you who this successor is. I want to introduce you to him. But before I do, Luke has one more piece of evidence for us to consider. There remains the sobering reality that many in Satan's family would prefer to stay there. They won't bother to defect. They're too happy where they are to consider a change. So here is how to know you haven't switched families. Verses 18 to 20. 
So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. First, do you see in verse 18 how Luke describes John's preaching? He talks about axes and trees being cut down and burned up and chaff and unquenchable fire. But according to Luke, he's not a prophet of doom and gloom. He's not a bringer of hard words. He's not an intolerant, inflexible, or narrow-minded son of a gun. No, verse 18, he is preaching good news to the people. This whole message of baptism and repentance and forgiveness and chaff and unquenchable fire and axes and judgment, this whole message is one of good news. But unfortunately, many people won't hear it that way because they're too happy with their lives as they now are. Case in point, Herod the Tetrarch. This regional ruler in verse 19, John preached the same good news to him as to everybody else. Herod, what you are doing is not good. You seduced your brother's wife away from him, forced her, caused her to commit adultery. You've now, she's divorced and you remarried. This is not good. There is hope. There is an opportunity for forgiveness if you would only turn away from it and do something different. But, verse 20, Herod refuses. And he doesn't simply reject the message or try to ignore the message. He must actually lock up the messenger. If you can't refute the truth, just throw it in prison. This is what Herod did to John. It's what the ruling council will later do to Jesus in this book. And it's what the angry Jews will do to Paul in the book of Acts. So how can you know that you haven't switched families? How can you know that you are still an ally and an agent of Satan? Just refuse to change. Refuse to change. Keep doing exactly what you are doing and defend your right to keep doing it. And when others come with the truth of God to try to rescue you from yourself and from Satan and to give you life, then turn on them. Find a good way to discredit them. If you are new to our church or if you are just visiting or if you are still holding on to your life, I have been praying for you. Leading up to this morning, I have been praying that you would recognize life when it is offered to you. I have been praying that you would come to grips with your spiritual family of origin. I have been praying that you would see this morning that the God who made you is a God who both condemns and rescues 
He does not give everyone a free pass just for the fun of it. He doesn't go around handing out participation trophies to all humans everywhere. He does not accept all people equally on whatever terms they decide to offer him. He distinguishes between the wheat and the chaff, between those in his family and those in Satan's family. And he treasures up the one and he burns the other. So I beg of you, please know that a final threshing of the wheat, a final unquenchable fire will come. If you live a selfish and a self-centered life, please turn away from it so that you can recognize God's salvation in Jesus when you see it. And even if you live a relatively selfless life, don't trust in it. Trust in Jesus. Why do I think you can trust Jesus? What does he have to do with this? Well, he is the head of household I was talking about. Look at verses 21 and 22. <clears throat> now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. We'll cover these two verses further next week. But for now, please see the great climax here that Luke has been building to through the whole chapter. John has been talking about how to defect from Satan's family to join God's family. But here, here is a man who doesn't need to defect. He is by nature already a member of God's family. He is God's beloved son. He is beloved for who he is. And with him alone, God the Father has great pleasure. To everyone I say, you can trust Jesus. Whatever you lose by turning away from your selfishness, he can repay it a hundred times over. Whatever you suffer for joining his family, he can make it right in the end. He alone deserves the pleasure of God and he freely shares it with those who desperately need it. In Jesus, you can find a new family. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, thank you for sending Jesus, your beloved Son, the one, the only one, who is by nature a member of your family, a Son of God, the Son of God. Thank you for Him. Thank you for sending your salvation. Please help us to repent. Help us to change, to turn away from our selfishness, from our compulsive self-love, our self-importance. Please help us to look to Jesus that we might see in him the one who can rescue us despite all that we've done. Please help us 
to be a part of your family and help us to live lives that demonstrate that we are a part of your family as we live for you and for the good of others more than for ourselves. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.